Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teachers, uh, teaches others accordingly will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came a starlit, a floweret bright amid the cold of winter, a flower in the midst of a lifeless place. Lord Jesus, we put all of our hope and trust in you. We ask for your great grace and power. Lord, you've humbled me in the preparing of this sermon, and I, prepare, I ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word today. May you speak through me. May we all have ears to hear what you are trying to tell us. May your spirit be here, present and powerful among us. And may we love each other and you more going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we have in this scripture passage a very remarkable claim on Jesus' part, that he fulfills the law. Now understand, to understand how radical and counterintuitive and countercultural that statement is, we really need to put ourselves back in the mindset of those who originally heard that statement, both the common people and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, because many of the mistakes that they made or the things they couldn't quite see are the mistakes that we still make today. The ordinary Jewish people that were forming Jesus' audience in this passage were disempowered, and they were disillusioned, and they were discouraged. And though they had fought very valiantly and famously against Roman rule in the age of the Maccabees, which was about 200 years earlier, they'd failed. The Romans were still occupying their land. There they were in the promised land, the fulfillment of the promise, and yet they saw nothing but persecution and disempowerment. There they were under a pagan and unoppressive alien power, weak. There were no prophets to speak of, and there hadn't been for centuries. And all the people had, that were left were the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees holding on to traditions and rules that tried to tell the people who they were and what they could expect. This law and prophets or what we call the Old Testament today. The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes were the gatekeepers of God's word, but they were poor at it. They held little hope for these people, partly because they saw themselves as different, more special, better than everyone beneath them, because they had the power to read and articulate and dictate the law of God. Their chief sin, we're told by Jesus and the writers of the gospel, was that they were focused on action, outward action, their own position, and they thought nothing of the heart. 
In other words, they could tell you all about God, and they wouldn't hesitate to wield that knowledge in power over you. But they had no real love or relationship with God, let alone with you. The Law and Prophets for the Jewish people was their history as well as their safe, their fire safe safe. The law was the very words of God delivered to Moses, and it was assumed that its promises were true because within the law came life and health, they promised, but there was little life and health to be seen, and they were left hanging on to the law, to the faith they had, a shell of it really, as best they could, but they were losing their grip just as they felt that God was losing his grip on them. In other words, the winter was cold. The sermon today can be roadmapped this way. The necessity of the law, the power of the law, and the beauty of the law. Those are our three anchors. Now, the necessity of the law, the law and the prophets that Jesus refers to is this Old Testament. And the Pharisees would have you think that this was a bunch of rules that they mastered. But the truth is, it's really a story. It's a story with a future. It's about God's commands for living, yes, but it's really about his relationship with his own people, the formation of a people for himself and that people's relationship with him. The book of Matthew, more than any of the other three Gospels, really focuses on this and focuses on the continuity between the Old Testament, that great story, the promises and the prophecies and the strengths and the failures and the ways God was greater than the failures, and how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those hopes and dreams. And what's more, he's trying to convince that same audience that God's family is actually much bigger than Israel much bigger than they ever imagined, which is why he ends his book with the Great Commission, where all of these Jewish disciples are told to go into all the world, and we know that they did. Some of them died in faraway places where the gospel is still preached to this day, such as Thomas the Doubter, who ended up in southern India. This is good news. That's what gospel means, good news. And you can imagine why this passage is so important to Matthew, the Jewish Christian. Because this particular passage, Jesus is speaking to the one remaining thing they had in their faith, the law of God and the prophets. And he grabs it and says, this is my own story. We need that law just as surely as those Israelites did. Now, we don't need it as part of our national identity, but we need it as a reference to the character of God, our Father, our family. That is, the law of God reflects who He is and what He is not. No one's ever seen God. No one's ever known God in some sort of exhaustive way. We can't master God because we are not God. But precisely because He is God, much of Him remains in mystery and incomprehensible, and we're not equipped to understand it, and yet... The law of God is His message to us regarding how we fit in His picture, how we should live in light of who He is. Now, we often think of law then in terms of our failures, in terms of how it relates to us, what we should do and what we haven't done, and how we look when we do it and what the consequences are when we fail. 
But this is really one of the fundamental mistakes that the Pharisees made because God's law is love. It is not primarily about us. It is primarily about him, who he is. Now recall this passage that we read in our service very, just last week from Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God is giving his people the law originally. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied and when you build fine houses and you settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, in other words, everything I promised for you, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you see how he frames the function of the law in that passage? It's not as if he's saying, here's the law, don't forget to do everything. He's saying, here's the law, don't forget me, who I am. He spoke this at the very moment he gave it to them. The function of the law is to know God and not forget him and to keep us from illusions of pride and self-sufficiency which is just a recipe for self-destruction. Of course, it is to make us holy. It is to help us be more like him. But remember that the original temptation from Satan was that you will be as gods. And if you think you're a god, you don't need the true one, or so you feel. Now, the law can feel very cold and scary, and so there are Christians who do approach this law of God or prophets of the whole Old Testament really as something that's done away with and passed in favor of the New Testament, as if God either never spoke it or he never really meant it or he somehow changed his mind or became a Christian around the book of Matthew. He hasn't changed who he is. He hasn't forgotten what he said. And he certainly hasn't gone back on anything he promised. We reject that idea here. And clearly, from our passage today, Jesus rejects that idea. One reason we don't want to reject this law and prophets is because God doesn't change. It still reflects something of who he is, and we need that. It gives us a foundation for right and wrong. Because there's law, there's such a thing as justice. We can say it is wrong for people to lie, cheat, and mistreat others. We can say that. We also must say that it's equally wrong for us to do the same. Why? And I've had many conversations with many friends around the world on this very point, many of them unbelievers and searching. It always seems to come down to this question for some reason. Those who don't believe in God of the Bible often have trouble with this question. Why is it wrong? to do all these horrible things? And why is it right to help a frail, old, helpless woman get on the bus? I actually asked a friend that question once. Why is that right? Why is that a good thing to do? After about three beers, we still didn't have an answer, right? <laughs> Without the character of God underneath all of that, people always end up with some kind of version of this. It's wrong because we, I, us as a society just don't want that. We prefer not to be lied to or cheated on or mistreated and prefer to be kind to old ladies. The trouble is society changes its mind a lot and it, decides, and it becomes very selective about who gets these rights and who doesn't. It's okay to mistreat some people but maybe not others. 
if we leave it all up to society or our personal preferences, we've got a problem. Aren't you glad that your ethics are not resting on your personal preferences that change from day to day? These things are wrong because God has declared them as antithetical to who he is and therefore evil, and God does not change. We have our ethics grounded in an ultimate authority in the, in the universe, not something that shifts and changes. And this leads to the power of the law. If you've been abused or mistreated or lied to or persecuted or horrendously disappointed, we see you. We see you in this church, but more importantly, God sees you. And you are right to cry out to him for justice. Why? Because justice is the very fabric of his being. It is who he is. You are speaking his language. And when you get a glimpse of this, you just might cry out with King David in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate double-mindedness, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Can you just hear all the constancy and the hope and the surety in David's words? Can you see how it grounded him, how the security we have in God who is steadfast in his character and tells us how to live keeps us from destruction that we can't fully see or even comprehend? David hates the double-minded because he's tired of shifting standards, and he's tired of being the one who shifts the standards. To embrace God is to embrace an unchanging standard for our own protection, for our hiding place. We need a hiding place that is strong and does not change. But of course, our difficulty is that we immediately recognize that we are not just, and someone may be praying to God for justice against us. This lack of performance can create guilt and shame and despair in us, and still to this day, I must confess to you, I shudder a little bit every time I read Jesus' words. Because every time I sin, I run the risk of being least in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes I worry that I might be lost from the kingdom altogether. Now, the Apostle Paul keeps me good company here, and this is a comfort. If you read Romans chapter 7, after six magisterial explanations of Jesus and the law and the power of the gospel in chapter 7, he says a lot of really remarkable, memorable phrases. Here's one. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Here's another one. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do that. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. The Apostle Paul wrote that, thanks be to God. 
Now, you might get what I've said so far. You get the necessity of the law, and you know the power of the law, and you might even be able to say with David that you love the law of God. But when it comes to keeping, I'm sorry, you can't. You can't do it. Seems like a cruel trick, doesn't it? But it's not. It's just a reality that we must acknowledge, and it drives us to a remedy. Paul himself comes to this realization in this kind of grand crescendo at the end of all of those phrases in chapter 7, the peak. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice his phrasing. Thanks be to God. That's the name that's associated with the original Father God of Israel, the giver of the law, who delivers us from our own self-destruction and selfishness and rebellion against Him through Jesus Christ our Lord, who fulfills that law and prophets. And this is the beauty of the law. Jesus' words in our text at once reaffirm that God was faithful to Israel and He hasn't changed and He's trustworthy, and at the same time, Jesus, being the fulfillment of the law, utterly recalibrates everybody's perspective on what the law is. Return to the position that Jesus' audience was in. Words of the law and the prophets, the priests, the Pharisees, the gatekeepers, they had failed in many respects. They'd forgotten they had to serve the people in the midst and work to bridge the gap between them and God through teaching, ritual, sacrament. They instead embraced their power as self-satisfying and stratifying. Maybe they were afraid. Everything else seemed to be falling apart. And that's what we do when we're afraid. We seize all the control we can get. But they took the power of the law away from God and used it for themselves, and that is the real nature of hypocrisy. When you're a hypocrite, you're not just being deceitful. You're robbing God of His design for the world and robbing the world of the truth. You're robbing the law of its beauty when you're a hypocrite. This is the most obvious in one example from John chapter 9. The Pharisees come to Jesus in the presence of, this is the most amazing thing, in the presence of a man who has been blind since birth. A man that everybody knows has been blind, he has never seen a thing. And right there in front of him, they say to Jesus, tell us, who sinned here? Who sinned so as to make this man blind from birth? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because that's the real question, right? You notice the calculus they're applying here? Now, to be fair, there's passages in the Old Testament that say salt, sinful works do have a lasting impact in judgment. But Jesus knew that wasn't really what was at stake, and He knew that they were ignoring whole swathes of Scripture that give a fuller picture. They weren't coming to Him and saying, please explain to us the mysterious balance between sin and punishment and the grace of God, the sin and punishment and the general brokenness of creation in this man's case. Can you give us insight? What's more, notice they're not saying, Lord, this is one of us. He's been blind since birth. Can anything be done for him? No, nothing like that. They turned this poor, living, breathing image bearer right in front of them into some sort of theological abstraction. Well, Jesus would have none of that. 
he said that neither the man, neither the man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. What an honor. That man waited his whole life to see, but what he didn't realize was he was waiting his whole life to be the greatest example of the Lord's glory revealed in a human being to date. That the works of God may be displayed in him and Jesus healed him on that Sabbath day. Now notice how the Pharisees responded to this. Oh, the Sabbath, right, shift the topic. This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's what they said. He was doing work. He was healing people on the Sabbath. And that's not what we do on the Sabbath, right? Now, this is the crux of the matter. Were they wrong? Well, in some sort of academic sense, no, because by appearances, Jesus was doing something the authorities hadn't sanctioned on the Sabbath day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you understand, Jesus wasn't rejecting the law of the Sabbath. He was recalibrating what the Sabbath meant because they'd lost it. He was reconnecting the law to its taproot, which was at the center of God's very heart. That is the Sabbath established in the book of Genesis when God rested because the creation of the world was finished and God declared it good. Did God really need rest? No. But on that seventh day, in a poetic way, God tells us his creation matters. He loves it. It's good. And if you don't stop and rest and worship and reflect, then you will forget to love him for it. And you will forget to love his creation. What Jesus does by healing this blind man from birth on the Sabbath day is he reclaims his own divine satisfaction on the seventh day. He says, this is good and I will make it good everywhere it's not. The man as God's creation was good and he heals him in the face of all the darkness and all the brokenness in the cold of winter. There is no better day to be healing than on the Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees, if they cared for God's heart, would have known this. They would have seen that throughout the Old Testament, the Sabbath is always associated with rest and delight and healing and the love of God for his people. And in many ways, Jesus' audience were all like this man who was blind from birth, a whole generation raised under uncertainty, Roman oppression. They had not known the culture of their forefathers. All the promises of God to his people were in doubt. They were waiting, much as we are waiting this first Sunday in Advent. In many ways, we are like that blind man, unable to connect all that we've been taught, all the should and should-haves with the brokenness and disappointment that's in our midst. We're clinging to the truths we have, but it often feels like we're not able to grasp them or fully deploy them, and we pray for the Spirit to help us. But please remember, this is precisely where we need to be in our perspective. The beauty of the law is that God makes us love Him through it. It's not that we, can't, that we can keep it. The beauty of the law, as Deuteronomy expresses, is in our studying of it and trying to keep it, however imperfectly, drives us to the God who keeps it for us and delivers us and makes us, slowly but surely, into the sort of people who can keep it. 
It's important to remember that Jesus is speaking today in the middle of his famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Right before this, here's a sample. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Imagine hearing that, being oppressed by the Romans, being told that you're stronger than your oppressors precisely because you're oppressed by them. There does seem to be a really radical upside-downism going here, right? Running through so much of this sermon and later echoed in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. We need the power of Christ. And if we have the power of Christ, disempowerment is blessing because that is where we will receive it for what it is, Christ's power working through us. What does this have to do with the law that Jesus speaks of? The law condemns us because it reveals all the ways that we fall short of God's glory, and we do. Jesus doesn't come to throw away that law and condemn us, but says, my love for you is greater than condemnation, and it's because I am the law and I'll keep it for you. This human expression of God's character, who He is, does not change. We need the law because it reflects an unchanging God, an unchanging nature that is reassuring to us. It not only reassures us that His standards don't change, but it reassures us His desires do not change. And one of those chief desires is you. God reiterates again and again and again through all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that His deepest desire is for His people. Are you among His people? Are you in the family of God? Do you, how do you get to be one of His people? What do you have to do? Now, there is a sense in which you don't have to do anything because you can't. But there's another sense in which you have to do one thing that is everything. You have to surrender. You have to stop trying to be God. You have to stop trying to save yourself. You have to lay down your life, and you have to lay down all of it, friends. You and I, every day, have to say, Lord, I can't do it, but it matters. So please do it for me and through me. Here I am. Use me. Change me. Make me into whatever you wish. Make me into something holy and more beautiful than I could have imagined. I surrender. Again and again, it's clear that keeping the law perfectly is a theoretical way of doing it. It's the pharisaical path, but the problem is nobody's been able to do it, including the people of the Old Testament. But what does God say about Israel? Literally, when He's giving him that law in the book of Deuteronomy, right near that previous passage, for you are a people holy to your Lord God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Paul extends this theme to you and me. He says we're part of the family of Christ. We are the new Israel, he says, inheriting all those promises that God gave to His original people. Israel was just the early template for a much wider, broader, more diverse gospel, a more rich and dynamic family. The mystery revealed in Christ was, with, was that this is His plan all along. The theologian Barry Smith runs a prison ministry for our denomination, the PCA, in Chattanooga, and he writes beautifully on this. 
He says, God is faithful, he's loyal and unchanging, his commitment never wavers to those in the covenant community. He's faithful to a thousand generations. You are God's treasured possession. You are precious to him. He takes special care of you. He watches over you and protects you. Why? For one reason only. He chose to love you. That's who he is. He writes an essay called, This is God, I Hate You, which you might imagine got my attention. <laughs> this is God, I hate you. Everyone hates you. I was sitting at my desk in my home office trying to work on a lecture for the seminary and prison class I was scheduled to teach the next afternoon, and my 26-year-old stepson, Paul, was standing in the hallway just outside the office door. This is God. I hate you. Everyone hates you. He explains that in his stepson's years, years, he had been stricken with seizures through most of his life. And they kept experimenting with medication to get the seizures down, and they found something they thought might work, but it in fact induced a psychosis. And so these sorts of incidents where Paul would say unthinkable things to the ones who loved him most were unfortunately frequent. In this moment, he says, I dropped my head and I ran a finger across my broken nose and rubbed my broken hip because the previous Sunday during a psychotic episode, Paul had headbutted me in the face and punched me in the chest. This is God. I hate you. Everyone hates you. Now, when I married Gail, I knew that I'd also meant having Paul in my life. While not trying to replace his father, I had for seven years tried to be dad to him, but this was just too much. I hadn't signed up for this. This is God. I hate you. Everyone hates you. I can't do this anymore. I thought, I'm done. And right on the heels of that thought, I mean immediately after that thought, I heard a voice in my mind. If Jesus is patient with you, how can you not be patient with Paul? I reflected on Jesus' patience with me. I thought about my many sins, my broken promises, my failures, my selfishness, my willful disobedience. I meditated on the truth that even though I had given him many reasons to say, I can't do this anymore, I'm done, Jesus had never said that about me. There are 202 times in the ESV translation of the Bible where the phrase steadfast love is used to describe God's covenant commitment to his people. His love is steadfast, unchanging, not because of what his people do or don't do, but because of who he is. Jesus is a steadfast lover. He repented. He says, this was one of the last psychotic episodes that Paul ever had because two weeks later, after several failed attempts at finding an effective medication, he was prescribed one that suddenly eliminated all the psychotic symptoms. That was in April of 2017. In July, Paul passed away from a seizure in his sleep. And Gail and I will always be grateful for the gift of having the old Paul with us for a final few months. He did not know what blessing and what little time he had ahead of him. 
he could not have anticipated the miracle that he was waiting and waiting and never seemed to come. But he did repent. And the Lord gave him a blessing beyond measure. In this incredible true story, we see all three points of this sermon. The necessity of the law, the power of the law, and the beauty of the law. Why? Because in the face of the worst lie imaginable that God hates you and everybody hates you, in the face of that, we see the necessity, power, and beauty of Jesus, in whom all things hold together. To dismiss the law and the prophets of God is to do away of God and who He is. You can't take part of Him, but when you embrace all of Him, you get all of Him. That includes His steadfast, incredible, far-reaching, self-sacrificial love. His love is not the opposite of His law, but a critical dimension of it. Because we can't keep it Jesus keeps the law for us because he fulfills it. He not only demonstrates his incredible love for us, he completely maintains his own character, his own ethos as God. He doesn't surrender one ounce of who he is, but fully embraces us in his righteousness, his own righteousness. And aren't you glad? And if you're weak and disappointed, and discouraged, and oppressed, and waiting. Look for God to show up in power. If you're just barely clinging to the faith you have, the words of God that seem to ring hollow, like Jesus' audience in Matthew chapter 5, remember that he who wrote those words made this world and the stars and in his perfect timing, he makes the blind man see. Amen.